Well, good morning to you, and good morning to our live stream viewers, our family, and uh, guests. Good morning. I hope you've enjoyed this time in the Old Testament as we're looking at those passages that foreshadow the story of the birth of Jesus. This is the season of Advent, and these are Old Testament passages uh, that uh, prepare us for uh, Jesus. And this passage is from the work of Hosea. We haven't looked at Hosea. We've looked at uh, Isaiah, two passages from Isaiah, and a passage uh, from Micah. When King Solomon died in 920, Israel was divided. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is sometimes in Scripture called Ephraim, sometimes called Israel, and its capital is at Samaria. And the southern kingdom is called Judah, and its capital is, as you know, Jerusalem. We've been looking at Isaiah and Micah, and now Hosea, and they're all writing around the same period of time in that divided kingdom period. And it's actually a very formidable period in world history. The archaeologists call this the period of the Syro-Ephraimite War. That's, that's a mouthful. But it's a time in which that northern kingdom is looking for protection. They're desperate for protection. Protection from whom? Protection from Assyria. Assyria is growing in influence and gobbling up territory. And a result of the Syro-Ephraimite War was that the northern kingdom made a great alliance with Syria. And they did so for protection. And the protection didn't stick. The capital of the northern kingdom, Samaria, falls in 722. All of their hopes and wishes in the northern kingdom to last, to be sustained, to carry forward as a people, all of those dreams, well, they melt away. Little theologians, I'd like for you to, as I begin preaching, to draw a picture of something that is melting away. All of the options of the northern kingdom are melting, and finally they all go but one, and that one is the love of God. Now we're looking at Hosea this morning, and Hosea is unique for this reason. Hosea, among all the prophets that we've looked at so far, so far is the one who's closest to this disaster of the collapse of Assyria, I'm sorry, the collapse of Samaria, and the growth of Assyria. Hosea is actually the only one who's living in the north. He can uh, witness much of this firsthand, although uh, there's much about Hosea we don't know. But he's close. He can see this disaster. And more importantly than that, he can see the eroding of options in the hearts of the people. Their options melt and melt and melt. Well, it may be that this is perhaps the least Christmassy of the prophets, and yet here we are, the Sunday before Christmas, looking at this guy, Hosea. While it may seem that way, he, of all the prophets, is one who writes most poetically and beautifully about God's great affection, about God's love for his people and his willingness to hold them and care for them and to restore them in all circumstances. But even as you hear in this prophet about God's great affection, don't forget this. Don't forget that following God is admitting that all of your other options are gone. 
This is something that you need to hear if you're not a Christian. Becoming a Christian involves watching, expecting, enjoying even all of those other options, all of those other loves falling by the wayside that you might love Jesus alone. Well, maybe uh, the least Christmassy of the prophets, but as he writes about God's affection, and as he writes about our hearts that chase after other affections, we see the character of God to love us, to come to us, and to restore us. The passage again is Hosea chapter 1, and we're just, or I'm sorry, Hosea chapter 11, and we'll look at just the first, uh, first four verses. Hosea 11, verses 1 through 4. Uh, please, before we read, join me in prayer. Father, thank you for meeting us this morning. Thank you for this season in the life of the church in which we uh, can make sure that we, were, we are reminding one another that you have uh, loved us in coming to us in Jesus. We thank you for speaking to us in this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. When Israel was a child... I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by, I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. This is the word of our Lord. I have noticed, and maybe you've noticed as well, that Christians are very comfortable talking about the love that God has for them and the love that God has for the world. There's a sense in which Christians love talking about God's love. Now, this can be true for uh, Orthodox Protestants as well as liberal Christians. It seems as though uh, God's character of love seems to be something that is clung to uh, even by uh, liberal Christians. But be that as it may, talking about God's love, well, it seems, seems rather easy. But I also notice that Christians are uh, also accustomed to talk about a non-believer's lack of love for God. Comfortable as Christians talking about God's love, and comfortable as Christians talking about a non-believer's lack of love for God. Those seem to be the two discussions of love that I hear uh, at least most confidently. But what I hear less of And I can share with you that uh, I'm a part of the problem as well. What I hear less of is about Christians talking about their own lack of love for God, their own fickleness of love, their own uh, running after other loves, even though they profess faith in Jesus. Comfortable talking about God's love, comfortable talking about a non-believer's lack of love for God, but a little bit less comfortable talking about uh, our own wavering affection for the God in whose name we profess belief. Now, Hosea highlights God's affection. You hear that all over the passage, talking about God's great affection. But Hosea also highlights our own affection. 
And these two are actually really different as Hosea goes on. Uh, Of course, uh, God loves and we love also. We should admit that. God loves and we love also. We have the capability to love. But God's love is stable and it's focused. God's love, uh, we might uh, say, is pointed, is focused. And not only that, God's love is consistent with his heart, even though it's an odd expression, isn't it? God's love is consistent with his character, uh, focused and never wavering, always consistent with his character. Well, that exposes a little bit about our love, doesn't it? Our love actually is a bit unfocused. It it wavers. It goes back and forth. It's a fickle. And, And not only is our love fickle, but our love isn't always consistent with our heart. Our heart, we can believe in Jesus, profess faith in Jesus, but with our function, with a, the behavior of our lives, we oftentimes, well, we function inconsistently with regards to the affection of our heart. And Hosea is such a good pastor. And Hosea, he actually talks about both of those things. God's great, unwavering, and consistent love and our very much wavering, fickle, and inconsistent love. You see, Christianity teaches that no person can turn to Jesus to love and follow Jesus without coming face to face with all of their other loves. To become a Christian is to uh, recognize those many loves that we have, those loves that have nothing to do with Jesus. And repenting of those loves, casting those loves aside to love Jesus alone. In fact, to not love Jesus is to be in love deeply with something else or some things else. This is what the Bible teaches about conversion. A Christian is someone who catches their heart uh, chasing after these various loves. It, It admits this, calls this out. A Christian is someone who not only admits that these loves are chasing uh, a variety of idols, a Christian admits that all of these loves, these loves that refuse Jesus, these actually are one single love. That's love of self. I love myself more than Jesus. I love my hopes more than Jesus' plan and will. And a Christian is someone who recognizes that affection and turns from it that they might love Jesus. And yet even after becoming a Christian, uh, a Christian is actually the kind of person who still feels strongly those competing loves in their Christian walk. They feel that even as they love Jesus, profess faith in him, they feel those other loves. And by the work of the Spirit, we're able to feel those other loves and to call those out, to recognize them, to confess them, and to lean even more heavily upon Jesus. And what's really beautiful about Hosea, as unchristmassy as it might seem, Hosea has something to say to both Christians and non-Christians. And even has something to say for those Christians who are especially aware of their own wavering hearts. What a good pastor Hosea is. And so this fourth Sunday of Advent, we want to see in this passage that God's affection actually accounts for, makes amends for, covers over our own lack of affection. Do you hear that? God's affection actually accounts for our own lack of affection. 
And this is true both in our conversion, but also in our sanctification, expecting, hoping that we will be restored to wholeness for all time. So God's affection actually accounts for our own lack of affection. That's what we hear in this passage. And I want to begin, actually, by starting at the end of the passage, verses 3 and 4. And I want us to uh, just investigate, almost objectively, just the nature of God's love. How is it that God loves? And notice that Hosea wants us to see God's affection very clearly. Look what he says in verses 3 and 4 about the love of God. You see that the ESV translators bring this out with the repeated appearance of that one-letter word, I. I, I, I. This is God's love. I taught Ephraim to walk. I gave Ephraim guidance, direction. I took them up by their arms. I took them up that I might be the one carrying them. I healed them. Literally, I repaired them. I led them with cords of kindness, a very strange expression, bands of love. But really, it's about God's gentleness. It's about the manner by which God loves. To lead them with cords of kindness and bands of love, John Calvin says uh, God leads uh, with uh, uh, not human cords but lovely bands. It's God's gentleness, his care for us. I became to them one who eases the yoke on their jaws. Again, another strange expression. But it's a reminder that God's love is a love in which he is aware of our ability. He eases the yoke on our jaws. He guides us and directs us, but he does so, well, with tenderness, with ease. And here at the very end, I bent down to them. It's God who came to them. They didn't come to him. And he says, I fed them. Now, all of these expressions here in verses 3 and 4 are to apply to God alone. Everything that I'm not in my affections, God is. Everything that God is, well, I can't even aspire to that. He loves perfectly. His love is focused. His love is attached to his very character. His love can't be crooked any more than his character could be crooked. And what, is, what are we supposed to see here? Uh, I believe that if you take uh, all of these expressions from Hosea to describe the, the love that God has, I think that we see three things about God's love. And each of these three are attached to his unchanging character. They'll never vacillate, never change. And those three things are this. Again, I think that these statements, of which I'm counting seven, these statements are, are categorized into these three variously, but listen to these three and see if you see them echoed as well in Hosea 11, 3, and 4. The first is this. What is God's love like? Well, God initiates with his love. God's love is an initiatory love. It's the kind of love that comes before any other love. He bends down to us. You see, Hosea doesn't say that we stretch ourselves up to him. He bends down to us. He does that initial work. That's the first thing. The second thing is that God's love is a directing love. It's an initiating love, but it's a directing love. Notice in all of these verses that really what we have here is we don't have a photograph. We have a, well, we have a moving picture. 
Notice that there's so much movement in this passage. As God's love is being described by Hosea, we see that God, he seems to have a plan, a purpose. He's guiding and directing all throughout these statements of the character of his love. So uh, God's love is an initiating love. God's love is a directing love. But notice there also seems to be uh, built into this some recognition that there might be uh, little blips along the way of those who receive God's love. God's love is a sustaining love, initiating, directing, and sustaining. You see that uh, God heals them, repairs, even rebuilds them. It's an architectural word. And that God is uh, feeding them, and it would seem regularly, I fed them, is uh, something we should understand is happening over and over again. He initiates with his love, directs with his love, and he sustains with his love. Just think about that for a moment. Hosea is describing beautifully the character of God's love. And as you think about this character, and particularly those three things, initiation, direction, sustenance, I'd like for you to ask this question. Who do you think should be listening to this? Who do you think is most going to resonate with this kind of love? Can you imagine an audience? I can imagine an audience. Who needs to hear that God's love is an initiatory love? Well, someone who not only feels unloved, but someone who feels as though they have no power to gain love. They, they have no, uh, no power to actually entice someone to love them. And so they, not just, they don't just feel unloved, they feel utterly unloved, utterly untouched, utterly out of reach of love. Well, someone who feels that, they should listen to the love of this God. Also this... Someone not only who feels unloved, but someone who can't see a clear path and purpose for their lives. It's someone who's tried over and over again to find a good, peaceful path, a path that leads to happiness, that gives happiness uh, each step of the way. Well, someone who can't see that path and can mostly see the failures of their attempt to go down a path they thought they saw, that person... That person should learn about this love that God has. As someone who feels unloved, someone who can't see the path, but I think also someone who knows that they need help along the way. Someone who is riddled with their own failure and regret. As someone whose hope is actually sapped down to the very dregs of the barrel. Who should be listening to Hosea? As he describes someone who loves with this kind of love, I think someone who feels unloved, someone who can't see the path, and someone who knows very well that they're nothing without having help along the way. Now that's the nature of God's love in verses 3 and 4. Now let's go backwards and let's look at the first two verses. And here we're not considering merely the nature of God's love, we're considering the nature of God's love along with the reception of God's love. This is, as it were, here in the first two verses where, well, where we appear. The reception of God's love. 
But notice at the very beginning that there is a historical context. I mean, just listen to this. And if you can remember anything about uh, Sunday school or about stories from the Old Testament, you can hear where this is coming from. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. That's verse 1. And you hear the historical context, don't you? That context of the exodus. God uh, coming into Egypt to uh, claim his children and to bring them out of Egypt to rescue them. And just this image alone, you see God's initiative coming to his people, entering that foreign nation. And you hear God's direction uh, actually describing the means by which they would be uh, brought out of Egypt and then uh, guiding them across the threshold of the land of Egypt into the wilderness. God's direction and his plan. But also, you would think of God's sustenance, that he brought them uh, into the wilderness, away from that land of plenty called Egypt. God actually sustained and cared for them, provided food and water. Just in that first verse, as you think about the historical context of the Exodus experience, well, you see God's love at work his initiative, his purpose, his sustenance. But there's actually another context, and that's the original historic context, the context uh, in which uh, Hosea is himself writing. Remember, I said we have, to rem- we have to consider that Hosea is writing an audience that is terrified. Options are melting away. Ephraim is caught between Syria and Egypt, and they have to side with one of those nations, or so they believe. Otherwise, well, they're going to be consumed by Assyria. Assyria is the uh, present uh, enemy. Will they run to Syria for help, or will they run to Egypt for help? And in Hosea with verse 1, what does he do? Think about it. Will I run to Syria for rescue? gathering up my family and going in that direction, which would be the northwest? Or will I gather up my family and head south, seeking protection from Assyria? And Hosea says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. That should sting Hosea's original hearers. They begin now to think, wait a minute, why would I want to run to Syria? Why would I want to run to Egypt to keep myself safe from Assyria? That God actually went into Egypt to rescue them. Why wouldn't God come into Ephraim to rescue us? He's done that before. In fact, he went into Egypt, into the land of the Pharaoh to rescue. What would he not do for me now? What would he not do for me now? You need to hear that, and I need to hear that. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you especially need to hear that. What would this God not do for you right now? Well, look at verses 3 and 4. Consider that that's his character of affection. And Hosea is saying to his audience, what will God not do for you right now? He, after all, went into Egypt to fetch you. And currently the people are chasing after other gods. Hosea tells us, he calls it out, they're sacrificing and burning offerings. And if you're caught doing that, well, will God come to you even then? Not only are you afraid and contemplating running to other helps, God will come and he will rescue you, but what if I'm caught in the act of worshiping after other idols, burning offerings? Will he take the initiative to come to me even then? 
Maybe you feel as though you are so deeply mired in your filth and in your sinfulness, so full of regret, you wonder if God will take the initiative to not enter Egypt, not even enter the circumstances of your life, but to enter a heart that you have so filled with darkness. Will he take that kind of initiative? Well, if you're not a believer, would you hear God? He dives into your life. Regardless of the filth, he dives in. I bent down to them. He is especially aiming at those who cannot stand up and stretch towards him. Yes. Yes, he will come down into your filth. So there's a historical context, but the historical context brings all of these triggers to the original audience to whom Hosea is preaching. But there's another context, and it's the reason why we're actually in this passage. We're not in this passage because I'm an astute pastor and I have picked this just by measuring the themes of the Bible. I'd like to be that pastor, but I'm here because I'm obeying Matthew. Matthew actually, as he talks about the incarnation, tells us that story. He's the one who sends us into Hosea. Here's the context. We're uh, looking now at Matthew chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. You remember, don't you, that Herod, he attempts to kill all of the babies in Bethlehem. He will get this Jesus. And Joseph and Mary, led by God who loves them, they escape to Egypt. And Matthew says this. He says that Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. We don't know how long Jesus and his parents were there, but we certainly know why God took them there. Not because God's afraid of Herod, but because God is teaching us about his affection. Because Matthew then says this at the very end of Matthew 2.15. He says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. That's why we are in Hosea 11. How then, we might ask, thinking about Matthew's words, how then, we might ask, is Jesus this child out of Egypt? He is. Matthew says that he is. The Holy Spirit says that he is. Well, remember that Moses was commanded by God to go to Pharaoh and say to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn. Well, God's proclaiming that about Jesus. Jesus is his own son, that's what Matthew understands God to be saying about Jesus when he says this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. This is God's special son. God, uh, in fact, is not, not only uh, calling him uh, his own son. This is not only God's son, although we see that in the passage, Israel is my firstborn. But this is God's a affection fully expressed. And look how God's expression, or uh, his affection is expressed towards Jesus. That God, he actually calls Jesus. He is the appointed one, the only mediator. Do you hear the echo of God's initiation? This is the appointed one who will what? Remember, God's love is not only initiatory. God's love is directive. God directs Jesus on a mission. This is the one that God sets his plan on. His plan in purpose is set upon Jesus Christ. And Jesus is that child who walks forward in the plan of God to redeem his children. Jesus will do it out of obedience to his Father. Because God's love is not only initiatory, God's love, it's directive. 
And then this Jesus, this one for whom Matthew says, out of Egypt I called my son, this Jesus will be sustained in that mission. Nothing will stop that mission. God will sustain him. Jesus is ministered to by the Holy Spirit to the very, very end. We'll talk more about that. But note that God's affection is fully expressed in Jesus Christ. Why is Matthew telling us this? He wants us to look to Jesus to be sure, to understand that this is God's great love. But Matthew also wants us to understand that all of the love that we have from God is a love that's fully expressed to Jesus, through Jesus. This is how God loves us. And this is a rescue indeed. We aren't those that can stretch out to God. God has to come to us. God has to direct us. And God has to sustain us. But he does all of those things through Jesus Christ. Because we are rebels where he is not. You see, when Israel came out of Egypt, they rebelled against God almost immediately. Their love of self counteracted against God's love for them. God's love never abated, but their love did. And so what happened is they come out of Egypt, they love themselves, and uh, those loves eat up, gobble up all of their love for Jesus. And God knows this, and he punishes them. And he punishes them with 40 years of wandering. That's the kind of people they are. And that's the kind of people we are. But look what happens to Jesus. Jesus, he comes out of Egypt. And his love for the Father actually never abates. Our love, as we come out of Egypt, is always conflicted love. But Jesus, his love for the Father is actually a perfect love. He knows that God is with him. What does God do with him as Jesus is baptized? God sends Jesus into the wilderness. Out of Egypt, into the wilderness goes Jesus. And he's in the wilderness for 40 days and without food. But what does Jesus know? Exactly what we don't know. Exactly what the Israelites didn't know. Jesus knows that God is with him. God spoke to him out of heaven at his baptism. Jesus knows that about God. And Jesus knows that God has a plan for him. What, what words does Jesus quote to Satan over and over again in the wilderness? He's quoting God's own words. Jesus knows that God has a plan. And Jesus knows that God will sustain him through all things. He is ministered to by the Spirit, and he will be ministered to by the Spirit throughout his entire earthly existence, even in his death upon the cross. He knows that God will sustain him. Now, when we say then that God's affection actually accounts for our own lack of affection, what are we saying? We're saying that as Christians... We are rebels who have been saved by the righteousness of another. We are a people of mixed loves. We're continually uh, grabbing hold of other objects, other things, which is really nothing more than grabbing hold of ourselves, filled as, uh, as we are with affection for ourselves. But our Jesus is not like that. He set self aside, and he did so perfectly. He knew very well that God had appointed him, that God directed him, and that God sustained him. That's exactly what we struggle with. 
So to be a follower of Jesus Christ is to be someone who clings to his perfect love, knowing that our love will never be perfect before God. This is what it means to be a Christian, acknowledging the weaknesses of your affections that you might elevate in your heart the strength of Jesus' affection for God. And for someone who is not yet a follower of Jesus, we hope that you become a follower of Jesus. But conversion is God's call to you. The offer of God's affection is made to you. But you have to see yourself as a flurry of affections. You have to understand yourself as running all over the place. But in running all over the place, searching for peace and for happiness and for fulfillment, really what you're doing, according to the Bible, is you're chasing after yourself. I remember way back in 2004, the very first uh, online dating website, I remember hearing the CEO of that company, a company doesn't exist any longer, in in an interview in Wired magazine, he said that really a person's true soulmate is themselves. I thought that was really insightful. Creating a dating website, really a person's true soulmate is themselves, and so they need to see themselves in a potential soulmate. Isn't that grotesque? But until you realize that that's you, you'll never become a follower of Jesus. You need to understand that that's exactly what your affection is like. It's arrogant, it's boastful, it's self-centered. And you'll believe yourself and not believe Jesus. You need to recognize that. This is what it means to become a follower of Jesus repenting of that very love, love for self. But in this particular passage, these first four verses, I want to leave us here this fourth fourth Sunday of Advent with a reminder to Christians. We, brothers and sisters, need to remember that it is God who came to us. We didn't come to him. He sought us in the advent of Jesus. He welled up an affection for us to such a degree that he came to us in Jesus Christ. And he actually struck him down with a punishment that we ourselves deserve. Remember, his love is initiatory. He doesn't love you because you're so special and better than the person sitting to your left or right. Remember this also, that God directs you, that he has a purpose for you, that God's will is to direct your footsteps and to be with you. You have a plan for life, and that plan will sometimes fall completely flat. And that's okay, because God's plan never falls completely flat. You have a path forward. You belong to the king. And where he goes, you go. But not only this, God will sustain you to the very end. And here I want to address those who are believers who feel as though God's not sustaining them. What they're going through feels like it's something that they're not going to actually be able to endure. God will sustain you to the very end. And what you're experiencing right now, you have to think of is barely an interruption. God will sustain you. He will make us whole. All of those other loves will once and for all be killed as you look at Jesus Christ and you see that affection of God. This is a wonderful reminder for the season of Advent. God came to you. You didn't come to him. God has a purpose and a plan for you in his kingdom. And God will be the one who sustains you 
to that end, whether you feel it or not. God's affection actually accounts for our own lack of affection, and he does this in Christ Jesus. And so, welcome to the fourth Sunday of Advent. Let's pray together. Our Holy Father, lead us into the holiday rightly. Help us to understand what is so significant about Christmas. It is your love for us in Jesus. And we thank you, Father, for coming to us. And we thank you, Father, for having a purpose and a plan for us. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, for sustaining us to the very end. Not for our name's sake, but for the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.